Hey y'all, Tosh here. Are you tired of being the gatekeeper of all your family's plans? Like you're the only one who ever knows the daily schedule? Then Skylight Calendar may be just what you need. The Skylight Calendar is super easy to use and it syncs events from already existing calendars you have for your work, school, sports, therapies, etc. My favorite feature includes the chore chart. Yes, you heard that right. Who doesn't love delegating house duties? So what's the catch you might be thinking? With a 100% satisfaction guarantee, if you don't love it, you'll receive a full refund with their 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. I'll tell y'all, the Skylight Calendar has made our slightly chaotic first responder home operate much more smoothly. So as a special offer, you can get up to $30 off your purchase of a Skylight Calendar when you go to theskylightcal.com and enter Mom's Talk. Again, skylightcal.com and enter code MOMSTALK. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L.com, promo code M-O-M-S-T-A-L-K. Welcome back. We're back again. It is the crew that was together on the last episode, back for round two with a very special guest during having a very important discussion about inclusive education. So stick with us and we're going to pick back up right where we left off. When you become a mom, you never imagine your child getting an autism diagnosis. It feels like your dreams have shattered, like a framed photograph falling off your mantle, exploding into a thousand pieces. But instead of trying to glue those pieces back together, This community of moms is here to help you build a new dream, a better one. So join in the conversation as us moms talk autism. All right. So you have myself, Jean, and Tosh hosting. Hi. Our lovely guest, Brie Gastaldi, who on our previous episode did drop some big truth bombs for us to deal with uh, and work through and acknowledge and ruminate on, um, discussing, covering what and why inclusive education is important. Um and maybe breaking down some barriers of what we think inclusive education is or what we're sold that it is and what it actually isn't. And so what we felt very compelled to do or have is to have a second part of the conversation, which is knowing with those facts in mind um, is, is the how. So it's how do we acquire, attaining, really realizing, having inclusive education fully realized, like what is, how do we even start (laughs) with this work? You know, what is the, what are the, what are the systemic shifts that need to happen and, and the, and the chronology, the scope of time that is, ideally going to take, you know, Bree, Bree does this work, you know, she works with school districts. And so it's not a, um, I come in, I do 
some personal development for like one or two times and then boom, you guys are off to <laughs> off on your own. Here you go. Now implement it. It doesn't kind of, it's not how programs like that are rolled out into districts. It is a much more comprehensive, um, more, more comprehensive process. And so that's why we wanted right. to have Brie kind of dive into and break that down for us if she can. So feel free yeah. to pick it up Brie, from really quickly. What, what kind of struck me in the last episode was when you um, talked about the uh, district in just outside of Portland, Oregon, and how you had said 12 years, they've been in the process of, of, in 12, of 12 years. Um, is that just goes to show that this obviously does not happen overnight. Right. You know, you don't, Brie doesn't get to come in and wave her magic wand and everything is, is just fixed. Right. I think that's kind of the first part of this journey is just realizing that um, the work really never ends, to be honest, Um, because you're going to have new teachers that have, different professional development needs. You're going to have learners exit your system, and then you're going to have learners enter your system who have different needs, things you haven't experienced yet, maybe something that you weren't quite prepared for. Um, So really the work never quite ends um, because things are always changing and shifting within a system. Um, And so like what really is the goal it's realizing that like you said gene they're huge systemic shifts and they take years to to fully conceptualize um and yeah the work is never really done um you know in the first episode we talked about lre data and how the united states compares to other developed countries with regards to how learners with ieps are included for 80% or more of their day and when we look at each individual state we can also see <clears throat> that each individual state is in a completely different place with regards to inclusionary practices um and this this LRE data is public. You can go to the um, Department of Education and find this data. They publish it every year. Um, and your state will also publish LRE data for every single individual district within their state, too. So, you know, I've seen states where they're at like, I think the lowest I saw was like 40% or maybe 35% of learners were included for 80% or more of their day. And then as much as 75%. But like we kind of talked about before that just because 75% of your learners are included doesn't necessarily mean that they have access and they have like a true sense of belonging. It just means that they're breathing the same air. It means that their butt is in the same seat as in, you know, in the same classroom as um, someone else doesn't necessarily mean that they truly are, you know, 
part of a community and are um, being intentionally planned for and accommodated for and curriculums being modified and right, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every state is in a different place. Every district within a state is in a different place. So like I said, that district in, in Oregon is at 94%. Um, There are a couple other pockets around the country that are similar to that, but then there's some districts that like no one is included. So, you know, how you enter into a particular system for one district or school might be completely different than for another. Um, And so, and then, you know, even within one district, Individual buildings within that district, individual schools can also all be in totally different places. So, you know, I've worked in districts where one building, the educators in one building are doing a lot of stuff. They're sort of um, just like taking the reins themselves and just saying, you know what, we're going to do co-teaching and the teachers kind of get together and they decide this is how we're going to do it. Obviously, they have leadership support, principal, assistant principal, all that support for it, Um, but they aren't necessarily asking like district leadership superintendent, directors, all those people um, permission to do this work. They're just starting it themselves. Um, Whereas in that same exact district in a different building, you're like, no, there's a huge like X, black X on the door. Like we aren't doing this. Everyone is saying we aren't doing this and it's not going to happen. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of resistance and for whatever reason, you know, they're just not interested in even hearing about it or learning about it or anything. Um, and then, I mean, to be honest too, there's um, even within one building, different grade bands can be in different places. So how you enter into a system really just sort of depends on where they're at in their journey. Um, and just starting starting there finding out kind of where they're at Mm -hmm. right and it's hard it's hard for for parents if you're a parent like looking at a parent perspective to analyze it from that angle um because what also jumped out at me is that what i what i found myself doing when we moved from we were in a district in um central austin you're an AISD. And then I was seeking out which district we were going to move in, like like where we're, we needed to move out of central Austin for, for one, the school zonings were bad. They were terrible at special education. Um, they actually have a TEA monitor right now. Like it's like, it's a legit problem. Like I knew I forecasted that I got my butt out of there and I researched the surrounding adjacent districts. And for me, it was like, I felt the additional stress. I couldn't just go into a school. And because I went towards several of the schools in inside of the in this district I live in now before weighing the decision, because I wanted to see what the disparities were. And I also wanted to see, I wanted to see the implementation. I want, it wasn't even just like, 
what is the binary result of what they're doing? I wanted to look at how is it being implemented? Is this really a part of the school culture? And how do you measure that? How do you recognize that as a parent? But that's what we, that's the additional load of the type of parents we are that we're considering when we're making a decision instead of just when you are, you have a typical child and you're just going, you're looking at how that campus is rated. Oh, it's got an A rating. It's a B rating. It has X, Y, and Z programs. It's very plug plug and play and looks very turnkey. In my mind, that was not the approach I could take as a special needs parent. And I don't think even moving forward and after hearing these discussions and anyone's hearing this discussion now can even look at that. They either see that themselves that we're, we're examining. I care more about, it's not just the what, it's the how. I care about how you're doing something. I care about how you got to where you are. I care about how you are. Maybe you aren't where you want to be, but how is it that you're moving in that direction and asking those questions? So um, like you are currently, so let's say, you know, you are, you do work with districts right now, you know? And so what in previous discussions independently, you've talked about like kind of how that takes shape, you know, kind of moving things like they move in cohorts, you move, you know, what kind of team conversations are you having before you were talk about how you're going to implement them? Like what is the, the framework of what the scope of work, what does it look like? So I use um, something that I've developed over the last several years. Um, I call it a theoretical framework for inclusive education. And it's a model that I use to help guide leaders and educators in making decisions about where to start. So, and one thing that I, that I try to emphasize is that, you know, that these are sustainable system shifts. So I don't want to come in and be like, you need to do this, 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 and this, and I'm going to give you this professional development. You're going to do X, Y, and Z, and then I'm going to leave and it's going to all function. It's like, no, that's totally not how it works. Um, I think of myself more as like a coach or a consultant in that process. Um, And so guiding leaders to make decisions for themselves about what they want to work on first. Um, But I use this framework to help them kind of conceptualize or like visualize how, where they want to start. Um, And so basically, um, if you can imagine um, like an old Roman building with like the grand staircase at the bottom and like the big, huge pillars um, at the top and then like a really cool roof with with cool designs around the, the roof, right? So at the bottom of this framework is this really solid foundation of beliefs and values. So we've kind of already talked about that in the first episode or the first part of this discussion was beliefs and values. So we have to have this, just like these old Roman or Greek buildings had these 
solid foundation or any of our homes that we live in have to have this solid foundation so that everything else can be built on top of that. Inclusive education also has to have a solid foundation of beliefs and values. So what do we think about learners, all learners with disabilities, without disabilities, everybody? When we talk about all, do we really truly mean all? How are learners with disabilities being represented in the district language that's being presented out to the rest of the community? Things like the vision statement, the mission statement of the district. Um, and how is that communicated from leadership, right? So like just these very sort of foundational things. When new teacher candidates are being interviewed, are you asking them questions about inclusive education? Like specifically, how would you feel if a student with disabilities was in your classroom? right? Like we have to make sure that people are on board and we have to understand what their beliefs and values are. And we have to create this really solid foundation because otherwise everything else is going to crumble, right? So then now we have what I call the five pillars of inclusive education. So one being natural proportions. And we kind of talked a little bit about this in the first episode. It, so natural proportions is all about... Um, for example, if your school has about 15% of their learners are on IEPs or 504 plans, I would also expect to see about 15% of students with disabilities in each individual classroom. So we aren't stacking classrooms full of learners with disabilities in one classroom and calling it an inclusion classroom, right? Sure. We have to, when we start disrupting those natural proportions, a lot of things start to go wrong. Um, okay. We get a lot of behaviors. Um, we get teacher burnout. That's a huge one, right? If we're expecting one teacher to be able to have a classroom of 30 kids and 20 of them have IEPs, um, it's just, it's not going to work. It's not going to be sustainable. And that's the, um, what I said at the beginning is that this work has to be sustainable in order for it to work, right? So we have natural proportions. Another one is the least restrictive environment and time. So we have to actually be spending time in general education and students have to, have to be accessing truly their least restrictive environment. So if that really truly means that some students are being uh, taught for a certain amount of time in a special education classroom, that's fine. That's what that student needs. But is that really, truly 100% their least restrictive environment? And that's a decision that has to be made by the entire IEP team. It's not one person's decision. Um, and if you can get the learner involved in that discussion, the better, right? Because they should have agency and and learn some self-advocacy skills along the way about what they need and what they uh, want for themselves, right? Um, so another one is engaging instructional practices. That's a third pillar that I talk about. And these are things like co-teaching, co-planning, um, universal design for learning, differentiated instruction, um, I mean, the list really truly goes on and on and on for the number of evidence-based practices that are used to 
support any sort of learning scaffolding and all of that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Community is the fourth pillar. So that was kind of another thing that we alluded to in the first part um, that includes engaging parents, um, what kinds of community things um, are done in the school and how are students with disabilities included in those community events. So things like assemblies, special events, um, field day, um, field trips, right? The list goes on and on of ice cream socials, all of that stuff that happens in schools. Like how are, how are, learners with disabilities intentionally planned for to make sure that they have access to those community events? How are families intentionally engaged to make sure that they know that these events are happening? Um, And then the fifth pillar is all about data-driven decision-making. So things like multi-tiered systems of support, um, intervention blocks, how are we taking data? Um, data should really drive everything that we're doing. Um, and the, this is across industries, right? Like even in business, people are, my my fiance is um, does sourcing and procurement for Nordstrom and he's always talking about making data-driven decision decisions. I'm like, oh, we talk about all that all the time too. You know, like this is, this goes across all industries. It's not just like something that we do in education, but we should constantly be making data-driven decisions. And we, we do make data-driven decisions all the time, every single day. I look outside and I see, okay, it's kind of cloudy. Um, it's a little sprinkly. I'm going to probably need to wear a jacket. That's making a data-driven decision. It doesn't have to be this like huge formal, data, um, like taking process and analysis process. It can be as simple as that, right? Um, a student walks in, he is, his shoulders are slumped, his head is down, his eyes are red. That's telling me that there's something going on and I need to check in with that student. That's making it all, that is also making a data-driven decision, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the five pillars. And then that really beautiful roof that holds everything all together is continued education and mentoring for teachers and leadership. Um, and that holds it all together, right? It keeps the pillars standing. It keeps the foundation from cracking. It holds everything together. Um, and I would say probably unanimously across the board, all the systems that I work with, um, we focus on beliefs and values first. Uh, they they identify that they self-identify that as something that needs to be worked on first. Um, and when I when I engage with districts, um, I we work on multi-year plans, so like seven-year plans. That might not necessarily mean that I work with them for seven years. Obviously, I've only been doing this since. 2021. So it's been a couple of years now, but um, pretty much across the board, everyone still wants to work with me. (laughs) Um, But really it's a multi-year plan where we're talking about things, we're talking about making huge systemic shifts and it will not ever happen overnight ever. 
ever, ever, ever. Um, and, and you can create this beautiful, like we, we create seven year implementation plans. And then once you sort of start pulling the levers of systemic change, you kind of start to see, oh, well, I did this. Mm-hmm. And actually that affected this. So now I kind of need to shift my plan a little bit. Right. right. And so we're kind of constantly making, again, data-driven decisions about the steps that we take towards creating uh, an inclusive educational experience for all of the learners. And you've, in one. and you've done it in a meaningful, thoughtful, and comprehensive way. And hopefully sustainable. And that may, and then that makes it sustainable because there's so much you're thinking of thinking about the totality of something in a holistical way. And we, one of the struggles that being a, a leader in a school district, so whether it is me as a trustee or even our superintendent or any of our cabinet, right? It's this, the public will want change to happen like that immediately. And one of our trustees gave an example that had analogy that has just stuck in my head permanently. And I find it to be so true. It's like a ship, the size of the Titanic or a cruise ship. You can't just turn the rudder of that ship and the ship is automatically going to hang out, hang a right. You know, it's, Mm -hmm you turn it and it takes, there's several things that are turning along with it in tandem to then make that turn fully successful. If you try to interrupt one of the parts without even following that chain of command or whatever it is, and you put things out of order, it actually makes the system like dysfunctional and you can't carry out the missions that, that you want. And so it's so hard to grasp, especially when you're talking about and districts that can lead up to very sizable amounts that you have main people like pointing things in those districts. That's why it's like so important to always be curious. So when you see something kind of happening at a lower level, be curious as to get curious as to why it's happening that way um, and looking at it like, well, what is, what is happening above that that is making that happen down here? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that's always a starting place. And that's one of, I think for, as a parent, that's one thing that you can do. That's something you can do in an IEP meeting, especially when you feel like you're bumping up against a wall it may not be that it's that administrator that wants to tell you no. It's because these are the parameters in which she's only able to operate within. And she also may be restricted and being how she can, he or she can advise you to go outward to that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be really hard and frustrating for both the educator and the parent as well as the child, I really loved also what you said about student input and students having agency and those self-advocacy skills. Um, that is 
a lot of discussions that I've brought up in conversations with parents where I'm gauging, okay, well, where is your child in their self-advocacy skills? Or I can hear a listening for, I have a listening for it. Like, oh, it sounds like they are. So before you go into the IEP meeting, maybe you want to put together a few statements that the, with your son or your daughter that they want, that way they feel represented in those conversations um, that you're having, but also always looking at that. And I think sometimes as educators, and I loved every, everything that you were saying, I felt like I was sitting in a board meeting, getting a presentation, like <laughs> you talked about the, the tiered systems of support and the scaffolding and everything. And being so I'm like, Oh my gosh, I was like, I'm sold. I'm sold. Are we ready to take a vote? <laughs> I move that we adopt this, this practice, this policy. Um, One of the things I'm interested in knowing, um, and I don't know if you can speak to this or not, or if if you have familiarity, like walking into a district that may already have, I mean, and most, hopefully there are some kind of pre-existing systems you also have to work within. And so what I think kind of coincides a little bit with these practices. Um, We, before I was ever even on our school board, we have restorative practices. So we have PBIS teams and that was done in cohorts. So slowly, surely across the district, then everybody was trained. And that was part of our code of conduct um, as in restorative practices. The next thing that has been adopted, and we did this like two years ago, was being a trauma-informed district. Mm -hmm. So what's your experience with, you know, or even maybe advice if, or how do you wield that in those conversations with school districts, Mm -hmm. with these maybe pre-existing programs and things that they're rolling out, like that are systemic, that are systemic through a district that are integrated. And I think are a part of that integrative process. And in those, I guess, maybe, I guess those are those part of that, those, those tiered systems of, of support um, and resources. I don't know, like, do you know what I'm talking about? Or you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, kind of, how do I, how, yeah, I guess I, I feel like what I'm hearing you ask is like, um, as far as where to start and like implementation, like rollout of how to get started. Is that kind of right? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh yeah. No. And I was just going to say in a district that has some, some systems has in place. Some, some something systems, in place. But yeah, it's yeah. Not- or something that they think is you know. And most districts do. I mean, most districts have, like you said, PBIS structures or some sort of RTI or MTSS stuff going on um, or trauma-informed practices or, you know, there's all kinds of things that are happening within districts um, already. So like with one district, we might look at, um, you know, starting the work with like an I'm just going to make this one up. Um, you know, I might be working with a director that sort of sees, uh, oversees the work at like one um, feeder pattern to a high school, right? So like they oversee, I'm just making this up, seven elementary schools, three middle schools and one high school, right? So like, let's take a look at those 
those schools that you work with and what's already happening in those, like what are the strengths of each one of those buildings? Let's identify maybe two elementary schools, one middle school and one high school to sort of start this work at. And that's where that seven-year implementation plan comes into play. All of the schools might be getting you know, let's say at the summer institute. So a lot of districts will have like before the school year starts, they'll have some sort of summer institute. Maybe we have some breakout PD options around inclusion. So teachers can go to those breakout sessions. Any teacher can go to those breakout sessions if they want to. And you kind of start scaffolding some of that work, even if that particular building isn't the adopted implementation. Yeah. Or like the, um, you know, and again, different districts will call it different things. So like maybe the um, the target school or the model school or the, you know, whatever they might call it. Right. I get, yeah. You, but, but the way you, then even, what, what start- you even described, I was like, I think you just described Pflugerville. You're like seven elementary schools mm-hmm. that feed into three middle schools that feed into one high school. <laughs> Uh-huh. That's a feeder pattern. Yeah. And camas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like some districts are huge. So they might have like 21 elementary yeah. schools, but one right. director sort of oversees one of those feeder patterns. And so, um, so yeah, that's kind of how we'll start that workout slow. And I like to show this video sometimes. Um, well, Tosh, you're from Washington. So have you ever been to the Gorge? Mm-hmm. So if All you aren't time. familiar, the Gorge Amphitheater is probably, it should be on everyone's bucket list, honestly. Yes. It's yeah. so cool. Whoever uh, you want to see there, but just it has to be on your bucket list. <laughs> so it, it's a it's an, amplith- an outdoor natural amphitheater that overlooks the Columbia River, and it is just absolutely amazing. I saw Aerosmith there It was, and watched the sunset. It was just... It is just the coolest place. But Mm -hmm. there's this video of a man dancing by himself, just like crazy, just dancing by himself at the gorge, just busting it out. He's literally by himself. And people kind of start out like moving away from him. They're like looking at him dancing like a total out of control dude. And they're like, okay, he's being a little weird and we're going to move away. And then slowly but surely, like two more people come over and start dancing with him. And then slowly but surely, like a few more people start coming and dancing with him. So now it's like 10 people just dancing like crazy. And then now all of a sudden there's like 20 people and then 40 people. And then now all of a sudden there's like 100 people that are just dancing their hearts out. And it's just so crazy. But like this one person started it by doing something that no one else was doing. And I kind of feel like sometimes that's how this work starts. Um, and especially like when, and I can definitely speak to this as an educator myself, when I was doing this work as a classroom teacher, um, you know, I would start with like, okay, I really want this one student to, he's on grade level for math. There's no reason why he's not accessing math with the rest of his class. So I work with this teacher, we set up some systems and some structures, we start offering, you know, he starts coming in to math for a certain amount of time, um, maybe with or without a para. And then we quickly realize like, this kid's got it. Like he loves this subject. He is like, and this is a true story, actually. I might as well just say that. Like this was one of my, 
one of my first years teaching, actually, I had this kid in my class who like, you could be like, I'm not going to say his real name. Hey, Johnny, um, what is 12 times 39? And he would just do 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 in his head, spit it out. And he was in fourth grade at the time um, on the autism spectrum. I mean, he was, he was beyond, he knew, he knew um, fractions. He was just beyond, he should not have been in my classroom for math. Like he was, he was a, he needed, to, he was what, what we call the, the twice exceptional student. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there are a lot of those kids. Like I've definitely worked with kids who receive IEP services and are also in the gifted program. Like that is also equally okay. Right. Like that is acceptable. And if we look at natural proportions, we should expect to see about 15% of learners in the gifted program should have some sort of disability. Right. So, um, I digress, but so this we'll just call him Johnny. Johnny was totally on grade level, if not above grade level for math. Um, he went to general education for specials and, um, any sort of special event in the classroom. If they had like toy maker workshop or, you know, any of those kind of fun activities, he was always included for those field trips, all that stuff. Um, and I, you know, inherited him, um, into my program. This was, like I said, one of my first years teaching and he had just, he had never gone to general education for math. And it just boggled my mind. So I was like, he and his parent really wanted it too. He was like, there's no reason why. So we worked on it. Um, and he just absolutely flourished. You know, we started, we started, um, including him with a para just to like, make sure that everything was all good. But then very quickly it was like, yeah, we don't need any, extra support for him. Like he's totally got it. Um, we might have someone like pop in and do like a thumbs up or thumbs down just to like gauge the day, like how are things going? Um, but yeah, he, he started going. So, so then from there, it was like, the teacher was like, okay, you know, I got this in the first episode we were talking about teacher competency. So start, slowly started building that teacher's confidence and being able to have a learner in her class that she had never worked with before. And now all of a sudden she is coming to me and saying, hey, we have X, Y, and Z happening in social studies or science or whatever. Like we really want Johnny there. How can we figure out a way to get him to be able to be there and participate. And so, and then, you know, I have other fourth graders in my class. Now the teacher in the room over is seeing what this other teacher is doing with Johnny. And she's saying, oh, well, so-and-so is in my class and I can totally have them come for whatever it may be. Right. So it's kind of like, like I mentioned that dancing video, it's like this one person sort of dancing by themselves, like doing something totally different. Everyone's looking at them like, what is this person doing? And then now all of a sudden it's like all of these people joining in and they're excited about it. And then like the students get excited about it. And then there's, you know, just to continue talking about, you know, this kid that we're calling Johnny, he was also an awesome runner. Like he could, um, 
run forever, like a cross country type runner. He could just go and go and go. Well, we had this community event, school-wide event. It was a run-a-thon. It was like some sort of um, like a fundraiser for the fun role. Yeah. Yeah. And the kids would get like different um, pieces of yarn based on the number of times they ran around the track or whatever. And like his whole class was out there just cheering him on and they were so excited for him. And like that kid's in my class. And, you know, like everyone was just, it became that pillar, that community pillar, like, And what we kind of talked about before, when that person isn't there, there's something off, right? There's a, Mm -hmm. there's kind of something going on. That's like, Mm -hmm. we miss him. Mm -hmm. Where is he? What's going on? I love this. So it, and and the same kind of concept holds true with working in a school too. So like a grade, I've worked in schools where one building has started doing co-teaching sort of organically because the teachers wanted to this is a true story. The teachers wanted to do co-teaching at this high school. And then slowly other high schools were like, oh, we, we want to do that. Like your scores are going up. There's that data-driven decision making, right? So the scores are going up. We want to do that too. And you guys are having so much fun and you're going to these trainings and this is happening and, you know, they're excited, which is making other people excited. It's like this kind of um, organic thing that just starts to take on a life of its own almost. And once it's like contagious mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and fun. I love this. Yeah. Yes. See, now yeah. I'm crying. And then, and then it's teaching. <laughs> <laughs> it's teaching our, you know, for Jean and I, well, for all, all four of us girls, um, we all have typical kids. And, and that's one of our biggest things is that we want our typical kids to be advocates for their siblings, but also just to be advocates for anybody, right? Um, and to be actually inclusive. And this kind of model is inclusive. Yeah, I, I think, let me tell you what I was mostly touched by. And it's like one of my own like personal passions that I have working inside of our school district is that you said you built agency inside of that teacher. Mm. It, cause it takes one caring adult to make a difference for a child. And you did that, but then it wasn't like, then you built agency in her and that just kept spreading. It kept, it mm-hmm. just kept spreading. And I hear so much like, you know, part of like a lot of the feedback and stuff that we'll get, you know, we'll have from, from staff that's struggling that may not have this agency. It, there's a very like deficit based blame the kid. It's the kid's fault kind of approach, right? It's the kid's fault that I can't reach him or teach him or that he can't be in here or whatever. And it's like to hear a full actualized story, you know, and you walking us through that, that is really powerful and that transcends. And I do know that those kinds of stories do happen in the district I am now, but also the other parts happen too. It's, it's a mix. It's not, I wouldn't say it's slated one way or the other because it's kind of in this weird limbo and part of like where I feel like coming out of 
the pandemic and with the major teacher vacancy and not a lot of teachers coming into the pipeline, part of the strategy I feel like has to change about how we approach education. That's so that like idea of even co-teaching becoming a more palatable, reasonable, logical way and, and, and a meaningful, attainable way of still being able to educate our kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and not it be just on the shoulders of one. And I think like my son's last year, uh, third grade gen general education teacher, she was a teacher that got stacked with a lot of special education kids because she has a passion for it. And she used to be a communications teacher. And now she's moved back to teaching strictly only our special ed kids because she sees that she can be a bridge to help potentially build agency in these kiddos to be more integrated into our school environment, but also to build, help build agency within the staff. So it's just like her and a few other handful of teachers are not the only teachers that have these integrated classrooms. I had a really awesome opportunity um, almost about a year ago to go down and visit that school district outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, and I got to hang out with the assistant superintendent for the day and just like tour the district and talk to the other leaders and see everything going on. It was such a cool experience. Um, and we talked about co-teaching. So one of the it's kind of a really interesting takeaway that I had never really thought about before. But, and if you aren't familiar with co-teaching, it is when typically, I will say typically, um, it's typically a general education teacher and a special education teacher that teach together. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that that can look. Um, but they so when they started their journey and like i said before they've been on that journey for like 12 years um they had co-teaching at the very beginning of their journey and what they saw was that it built up the capacity of their general education teachers so they don't actually even do they still do a little bit of co-teaching but sort of like a side effect was that it built the competency of their general education teachers so much and their confidence so much that they really didn't even need as many co-taught classrooms anymore because the general education teachers felt confident and competent enough in their own pedagogy that... Are you guys okay? Oh, yeah, you can hear me. Oh, okay, sorry. We are okay. <laughs> um, Okay. Um, yeah. So it just, it um, built up their confidence and competence so much that they really didn't even need to have as many co-taught classrooms. But the things that remained was co-planning. So they continue to have a lot of systems and structures in place that allow general education and special education teachers to communicate with one another and plan together to ensure the success of the learners with disabilities that are going to be in that general education teacher's classroom. So even, even if uh, the co-taught classrooms aren't necessarily there anymore, what has remained are these 
systems and structures that still allow uh, what would have been co-teachers continue to plan with one another and communicate. I love it. So it was essentially like a temporary reinforcer um, that still served to, again, you still have, then you end up with a sustainable system that you can keep building on. mm -hmm. And I think it also speaks to how, like we were talking about when you start pulling the levers of systemic change and how how the work is never really done. Like imagine if they would still have co-taught classrooms, how, um, first of all, they aren't making d- data-driven decisions. They're not changing what they're doing. They're just continuing to do the same thing. But what they're seeing, they're making decisions based on what's happening with their staff and shifting what they're doing to continue to accommodate and create access. Um, And like the work is never really done. Like it's always changing and shifting. And maybe there's a time where they will need to have them again, but at least some of those systems and structures are in place to where now they can have another co-taught classroom because they know they have this cohort of students coming in who all need support with X, Y, and Z. Well, we we can make sure that we're continuing to create access for those learners by implementing this co-taught classroom again. Yeah. I mean, like, it's such a, like, beautiful thing. And you can tell, you know, those things take time. You, it just does. And it, you can still feel the impacts of those change changes as, as it's beginning to be implemented. It may just not be as quantifiable yet. Um, so it's hard to track the data kind of in the very near beginnings. Um, but you kn- know, it's possible. Like you just, you just know it's possible. I just mm-hmm. feel like this needs to be the future, of the world, the education. Like this is, this is it. You're you've reimagined education. Brie, congratulations. <laughs> I will make sure you. There's actually sure- a book called reimagining special education. You should all read it. My good friend, uh, Dr. Jenna Rufo, and one of her colleagues wrote it. <laughs> oh, how old, how old is that yes. book? Mm, maybe two years old. Sweet. Yeah, I definitely need to read that. I definitely need to read that. Thank you for that recommendation. Um, I am a total nerd, and I could com- continue talking about this forever honestly, like forever, I would be like, I want to just pull more information from you and be like, okay, so what are the next steps? (laughs) And then steps after that? (laughs) What about if this happens? Um, Mm -hmm. But you, you know, you are really devoted and passionate about this work. It's completely transparent. And it'll make I'm sure it makes all the difference with all of the districts and administrators that you work with. Like it's, has to be totally obvious um, to them. And uh, so I can't thank you enough for honoring yourself and your commitment to this work, because if not, we wouldn't be sitting here even having this conversation. It's really, really important sets of conversations that really, I think, I think even if we go back and re-listen to these episodes at different times, we'll have different takeaways and, things to think about um, because it's that comprehensive of a topic. Mm -hmm. So um, 
thank you so much for putting up with us. <laughs> thank you. Exactly. Yes. Thanks for putting up with us. All the planning. <laughs> with us. Any, any yeah, all the steps. <laughs> then you have, then we have all the women on here that have ADHD running an episode. <laughs> super cute. Super cute. No Brittany, no Shannon to like rein it back in. <laughs> Tasha was crying last time. I was crying this time. Like very special. All the crying, yeah. crying is good. <laughs> so um, we will make sure, obviously, to include and hopefully, like we'll collaborate here on on show notes. So we make sure that the right information is is plugged into show notes for these episodes um, and any content that we that we developed because I think there's a lot of meat here to this conversation that can be used as once these episodes launch. Um, so I, I, you know, appreciate that feedback. And then like, you know, for our listeners, if you have additional questions or feedback, um, you know how to find us, but, but Brie, how do they find you? Um, you can find me on social media at the inclusive educator, or I guess Instagram, the inclusive educator. Uh, my website is inclusive-ed.net. Uh, so you can find me there as well. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And so as usual, anyone listening, if you liked us or you do like us, make sure you subscribe to following our podcast and that you write any reviews because reviews help other people that need to listen to this content find us. And that just opens it up to everyone. I guess obviously majority of our listeners um, are families and moms and dads, um, but plenty are, are educators and other supports um, in our lives and for those that just want to know about more about this topic. So thank you all for listening and being here. And, um, We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye, guys.